Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 25th, 2016, and my guest is Alberto Alessina, the Nathaniel Ropes Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University. He has written extensively on fiscal policy, austerity, and a wide range of other topics, including culture and institutions. Alberto, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to start with fiscal policy. We're going to see where we end up, but it's an issue that a lot of people are very interested in. It's an issue that has been in the news as well as economic conversation for the last really five years and with a lot of intensity. So I want to start with a seemingly simple question, which is, what is austerity? Austerity, uh, first of all, is not a simple question because the word austerity has been used in many, many uh, different ways. But the way I think of austerity is uh, a situation in which, for whatever reason, Fiscal policy, budget deficit, uh, government debt have been have gone sort of out of hand uh, in the previous years, and for whatever reason, it is decided that now it's time to return to a more um, to a more rigorous fiscal policy and reduce the deficit and reduce the growth of debt. In principle. Uh, there should never be any need for austerity if government followed uh, uh, the rules of optimal fiscal policy, namely having deficit during recession or in period of exceptionally high government spending needed for a war or for a natural calamity or whatever, and then having surpluses during booms and in period in which government spending is not high, is not especially high. So if the government followed this optimal fiscal policy rules, there would never be any need for austerity. Austerity comes about when, for some reason, government have gone out of whack and they increased debt and deficit too much, or there were a combination of, say, the financial crisis and governments uh, not having had uh, um, oculate uh, good fiscal policy before the financial crisis. So austerity is uh, the the point of what I'm trying to make is that austerity is something out should be considered as something out of the ordinary, something that happened occasionally when government have done something wrong in the past. But you can think of it as a it described it and it's talked about in sort of I think two different ways in the press, which is austerity. Some people paint it as a strategy. Well, we're not doing very well. The economy is not doing well. We need to do something and we should cut spending or cut or raise taxes, cut the deficit as a way to engender confidence. That's one story you hear. I think sometimes you hear it from the critics rather than the supporters of austerity, but that's one story. The other story is we don't have a choice. We're going to have a, a crisis and so we're going to have to do something dramatic to uh, return to fiscal sanity. Are, are those two cases different? Do you hear them talked about – do you hear austerity talked about in those two different ways? Am I right? Yes. I mean, I think I would say there are probably even more than two different ways, but certainly these are two of the different ways. I mean, uh, I would say uh, when the 
there are many reasons why an economy may not be doing well. I'm talking about the first argument. There are many reasons why an economy may not be doing well. Uh, excessive deficit, excessive public debt is, uh, of course, uh, one of them. And uh, there are reasons to believe that if, uh, say, if government spending is uh, very high, taxes are very high, and the feeling is that this is creating a burden on the economy and therefore you need to do something about that, uh, that's uh, one view about austerity, really correcting some imbalances in the economy when, the, when rightly or wrongly it is believed that those imbalances are causing uh, problems uh, uh, to the economy. And that has, has happened, uh, say, before the financial crisis. There have been many, many, many cases, many examples of austerity exactly around, along, uh, along those lines. Countries felt like they were in a, in a difficult situation, partly due to fiscal imbalances. They need to do something about it. Sooner or later, they needed to, be, to do something about it. And in fact, the more they waited, the more costly it would have been to engage in these policies. As you said, the second type of austerity is one in which we are in a crisis for whatever reason. The market don't believe in us anymore. Uh, interest rate on the debt are, are going to the roof. Uh, and uh, there's nothing else we can do. Uh, and then, of course, there have been several examples of those in, uh, after the financial crisis. And uh, in some cases, uh, there was no choice. Let me say that the one interesting aspect of this is that when you have no choice and you you have to do something quickly, in most cases, uh, it is actually much easier to raise taxes because you have an immediate effect on the budget. Just ask people, go to the cash machine of the taxpayer and you get money out of them. To cut spending, figure out what to cut, how to cut, how to do it, to minimize social costs takes a while. And, and when the time is not there, you just raise taxes. A perfect example is my own country of origin, Italy, that in 2012 and, on to, and 2011 was in a situation of being close to a default on the debt because the interest rate were to the roof. There was contagion from Greece. The previous government, the previous Berlusconi government did not seem to have a situation under control. And a technical government was appointed with the, the goal of you know, avoiding a financial, a second financial crisis in Italy, they had to do it quickly. And the only thing they could do was to raise taxes. The result was another major recession in Italy. So sometimes the time pressure makes you make the wrong choices about which kind of austerity to do. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about that different choice between raising taxes and cutting spending as a way to close a deficit um, and bring about uh, a balance and the need to, and to reduce the need to borrow. But I, I brought up those two examples, the sort of strategic idea of austerity versus the, oh my gosh, we have to do something view. Because I think I found it fascinating that after Greece, which was the, got most of the attention, had uh, went in its, had its crisis, a lot of people said they made a huge mistake in trying to close the deficit. They needed, in fact, to be borrowing even more. And what what would you say to that claim? I think Greece is a special case. Uh, to begin with, they were growing at an extraordinary rate in the first 10 years of the euro. They, did, they were doing extremely well. It turned out that they were doing it just because they were borrowing and consuming what they were borrowing. 
They were even heightening their deficit. Uh, deficit at the beginning of the financial crisis was supposed to be 3% of GDP. Instead, it was 13% of GDP because the Greek have sort of hidden their deficit. Uh, there was major, there was major tax evasion. Productivity was not growing. It was actually declining. It was a country in complete economic disarray. Now, at that point, uh, probably the clean solution would have been to have Greece default uh, and and uh, call it a day. Uh, the problem was that uh, it was because uh, Greece is also a very small country, um, so um, relative to the rest of Europe. The problem was that well, the cynical view is that uh, the German and the French did not want their banks to suffer from a Greek de- uh, Greek default because. Uh, uh, Greek, uh, I mean, German and French bank uh, held a lot of the Greek debt. The slightly less cynical view, uh, I mean, the less cynical view would be that the default in Greece would have triggered uh, contagion in other country, in other high debt countries like Italy or uh, high deficit countries like Spain and Portugal and Ireland. That may have created a second major financial crisis, perhaps even a collapse of the of the euro. So. The austerity plan for Greece was, in my opinion, not credible. Not, nobody really believed, I think, uh, uh, that it would have worked in the sense that it was extremely, extremely uh, large in terms of proposed cuts in deficit. Uh, it was unrealistic that they would manage to achieve those cuts. And in fact, they were not, and there was a back and forth between do this and the Greek were doing one third of what they were supposed to do. The Troika pretended that they, that they were doing well enough to give them even more money. Uh, then they were doing one half of what they were supposed to do. And, and so it was going back and forth, and then there was an air cut on the debt. So Greece was completely uh, mis, uh, mismanaged. Now, that leads to your second question. The mismanagement of Greece created panic in the markets uh, and countries like Italy, Belgium, Portugal, where at some point were uh, borrow- the government were borrowing at 6, 7%, uh, the uh, interest rate of 6 or 7%. And there was a sense that uh, if the market com- completely uh, stopped believing in the sustainability of this country's debt, particularly that, uh, the debt of Italy, which is very large, uh, it would have been a major, major, major disaster with uh, bank new a new round of bank failures and uh, and uh, you know perhaps the collapse of the entire financial inst- institutions of Europe. At that point, to simply say we need to borrow even more because we need to support the economy to to grow more to get out of the recession, uh, it was, in my opinion, somewhat short-sighted in the sense that um, it, uh, to simply think about government spend, spending more to get the economy uh, more quickly out of a recession was, in my opinion, forgetting all of these other aspects, which were a problem of uh, potential financial collapse, bank failures, and then an even a much bigger recession. So Europe for all this combination of the reason, European countries were forced to uh, enter in this austerity policy probably sooner than it might have been optimal. 
um, some country had accumulated too much debt in, before the financial crisis, so they, uh, they were in a situation in which they could not, for that reason, they could not prolong borrowing because their debt was already very high. So they entered in, uh, in a phase of austerity, perhaps uh, attached too soon than they should have, and since they were forced by these market forces, they had to do something quickly. And in some cases, not all cases, uh, they end up raising taxes and cutting spending. But even when you look carefully at the data, you, once again, you find that um, austerity done by uh, raising taxes has been much more costly than austerity done by cutting spending, even after the financial crisis. So um, let's talk about that. So your work uh, focuses on, on many issues, but that one in particular is one I think is the most interesting which is that when you studied this recent episode of, of, of European countries trying to reduce their deficits, um, you found a very different response for the economy as a whole when those changes were done via tax increases versus spending cuts. Uh, try to summarize the, the range of, of magnitude and, and the differences in the, the, two, the two responses. Okay, so... Uh before the financial crisis, uh, after the financial crisis, there were uh, several papers that I and others had been written, which uh, had found that in a way which, in my opinion, is pretty much uncontroversial, and uh, you know people may disagree about the magnitude of this or that coefficient, but uh, any uh, unbiased observer would agree that after the financial crisis, at least, all the episodes of austerity uh, up to then were characterized by the fact that those that were based on government spending were much less costly in terms of uh, uh, short-run recessions than those based on tax increases. In fact, in some cases, um, government uh, austerity done with cutting spending have had no cost and in some cases, are, there have been also cases of so-called expansionary austerity, namely the budget cuts, uh, spending cuts have been associated with an increase in growth rather than declining growth, while tax-based um, tax austerity have been much more costly. And the difference, the difference are quite large. We are talking about uh, the effect of uh, spending-based um, austerity uh, uh, having close to zero cost on average in terms of output and tax-based austerity having recession of two, three uh, percent uh, of, uh, of uh, GDP uh, for two or three years. So pretty, very large, very large uh, differences. Now, and we can, re we can return then to that, that uh, you know, we can go in more detail later. Now, when the... When the financial crisis occurs and the austerity um, uh, that followed the financial market happened, uh, there was a period in which uh, sort of the, everybody said, oh, look, austerity is terrible, it's causing recession, uh, it's a disaster, look what's happening. Uh, some people draw, drawing the conclusion that uh, those costs were unreasonable and we should, we should not have had austerity and we talked about that before and some people saying well these are costs but they are necessary because austerity is unavoidable. Now when you, when you 
evidence begins to accumulate and things are a bit more settled now and you look at this recent evidence you find once again exactly what it was true what we what we found before namely that tax based austerity have been much more costly than spending based austerity and let me give you two examples one is Italy that I mentioned before in, uh, in the end of 2011, early 2012, they raised taxes by almost 2% of GDP, a variety of different taxes, and Italy entered in another recession, and Italy has been in a recession for uh, basically almost until now, and from the beginning of the financial crisis up to now, it, it has lost 9% of GDP per capita roughly, and uh, while other countries were coming out of the recession in 2013 and 14, Italy was still deep down in the recession as a result of this tax increase in 2012. The opposite example is the England, when the Cameron government came into office, it announced and implemented uh, spending cuts uh, in 2011 and so. And uh, in fact, it's interesting that the IMF predicted a major recession for Britain and there was quite a vocal disagreement between the British government and the IMF about uh, the, the uh, benefit and cost of their spending cuts. And at the end, the British government turned out to be right. And in fact, the IMF even apologized publicly for having um, uh, underpredicted the UK economy, who did quite well in 2012, 2013, 2014. On average, they did, they did well, they did not, and they did not enter in a recession, and uh, and they did uh, reasonably well, quite quite well, considering that they were still suffering from the financial crisis, and they had done pretty sizable spending cuts. Did they so actually? Two, but did they actually cut spending, or did they just talk about it? Well, that's a good question. There was a lot of talk about it, and uh, say they they talked. And they announced 10, and they, then they did uh, four rather than 10. But they, they certainly did something, uh, and, uh, and, and the deficit did go down uh, substantially. The, the public debt uh, slowed its growth. So they talked more than what they did, uh, but they, they did do something. So, yes, there is so, a sense in which they – even though I must say that incidentally, incidentally – and this is actually another – quite interesting point that uh, announcement of policies may actually have an effect on the economy uh, as well. So we we may return to that in a second. But in any case, they they certainly uh, did less than what they were saying, but they they did do something. Now, go ahead. I I just have to quote, um, I have to give you two quotes here. Uh, One is from uh, Paul Krugman in November of 2015. And the second is Paul Krugman in April of 2015. Here's the first one. The doctrine of expansionary austerity, the proposition that cuts in government spending would actually cause higher growth, despite their direct negative impact on demand thanks to the confidence fairy, was all the rage in policy circles five years ago. But it brutally failed the reality test. Instead, the evidence pointed overwhelmingly to the continued existence of something very like the old-fashioned Keynesian multiplier. The second one is more, even more pointed. Meanwhile, all of the economic research that allegedly supported the austerity push has been discredited. Widely touted statistical results were, it turned out, based on highly dubious assumptions and procedures, plus a few outright mistakes, and evaporated under closer scrutiny. 
It is rare in the history of economic thought for debates to get resolved this decisively. The austerian ideology that dominated elite discourse five years ago has collapsed to the point where hardly anyone still believes it. Hardly anyone that is except the coalition that still rules Britain and most of the British media. Uh, is he talking about your work being discredited? Is he talking or do you think or is there something orthogonal about that claim to your work? Is it something that is he talking about some different aspect? Because he makes it sound like this view that cutting spending could be. Well, harmless. I mean, I think I think um, I think Paul Krugman has rather extreme views. And uh, but more importantly, he he, he talks about. Uh, his views as if they were obviously true and anybody who disagreed with him was obviously wrong and uh, he exaggerates and I really, don't want, I really prefer not to go into a, in, not to go into a, um, a discussion uh, about his quotes but I think that uh, the idea that uh, the work about austerity that I have done, I and others have done has been discredited is, is wrong. Uh, in fact, the IMF, uh, in 2010, uh, wrote a rather pointed criticism about, uh, about my work in particular on, uh, on, on two points. One, whether spending increases, uh, were less costly, um, sorry, spending cuts were much less costly than tax increases in, uh, for, uh, in terms of austerity policy. And when everything, after everything was said and done and written, even the IMF had, not, uh, had to conclude that this was indeed the case, that spending cuts were uh, uh, much less costly than tax increases. Now, for reasons that are not completely clear to me, they seem to underscore this message of their own work. But if you read the, the published paper of this IMF researcher, you will conclude that they also agree with this conclusion, which is the fundamental result about austerity that, uh, on which my work um, uh, is based. So on this point, actually, I think Krugman is completely wrong. I think there is uncontroversial evidence that spending cuts are much less costly than tax increases. Uh, so, on this point, actually, it's exactly the opposite. Now, the second point is whether there are cases in which spending cuts uh, accompanied by other policies can be, uh, can be uh, expansionary, and the confidence argument that he makes fun of uh, is actually confidence, one of the many aspects, and we can elaborate on that, but uh, uh, I think that there are several uh, episodes in which uh, fiscal uh, spending cuts have been uh, have been uh, um, have been accompanied not by a recession by by uh, an expansion so uh, i think that uh, um, those kind of statement by krugman are trying to push a view which is respectable but uh, they are not uh, uh, they are not uh, proven by the facts, or at least they're not totally not uh, supported by research. So let's talk about the empirical finding itself uh, and some of the challenges of of measuring it. Uh, I want to start with the intuition, if there is any, in the the most basic Keynesian model of the role of government spending. It's not a model I'm a particular fan of, but it's the one that I think most students are taught. 
<clears throat> as undergraduates, still uh, government spending in a, a recession adds to aggregate demand and stimulates through the multiplier or cut in government spending then would be uh, destructive to aggregate, would reduce aggregate demand and reduce uh, income, GDP. And it, at an even slightly more basic level, you could argue, you don't, but you could argue that, well, it doesn't matter whether you have tax increases or government spending cuts, they both reduce aggregate demand and therefore in a recession, they're not productive, they're harmful. And yet you find that they have very different effects. So I want to talk about two things. We're going to start with the first. The first is going to be, why might that be true? And the second is, how might one, how have you and your co-authors tried to actually measure that in a world where so many things are changing at the same time? Other policies, as you mentioned, uh, reforms, as well as certainly monetary policy, which is one I think the main argument that some people make about trying to make conclusive statements about fiscal policy. So let's start with the first. What do you think is the reason for why you get such an asymmetric um, effect from tax increases compared to spending cuts? Well, the reason is that in the basic uh, uh, Keynesian model and I, I guess repeat basic because, of course, Keynes is much richer than what uh, is often referred to uh, on his, how his views are expressed. But in any case, the basic Keynesian model that you summarize, a spending cuts reduces uh, aggregate public, the public part of aggregate demand and increasing taxes reduces the private demand. Uh, and in fact, in the basic Keynesian model, uh, a spending cut should actually be even more harmful the tax increases because spending cuts is entire the entire spending is cut plus there is a multiplier effect while on the if you if you raise uh, if you raise taxes uh, people reduce some of their savings so the aggregate demand goes down less with tax increases mm. now uh, there's nothing wrong with that uh, except that there are a ton of things which are left out. And when you start putting things which are left out, uh, uh, many other things uh, become relevant, even talking only about fiscal policy. If you then add the, the fact that austerity plans typically are a combination of many, many policies, then you can uh, then make the situation even more complicated. But starting only remaining in the strictly confined to fiscal policy, uh, uh, the Keynesian model is static, for example, so, or at least this version of the, the this simplification of Keynesian thinking is static. And uh, so if you cut government spending today and you think, and people think that this cut is permanent, they will think, okay, in the future taxes will be lower. So uh, if I expect in the taxes in, taxes in the future to be lower, then uh, I can consume more today or even more relevant, and it turned out that empirically, this, what I'm about to say is empirically even more powerful, that if you are an investor or an entrepreneur and you see government spending going down, you expect your taxes to go down in the future and then you uh, make uh, investment plan for the future, considering that investment takes a while to materialize the, the future matters a lot. So 
uh, you uh, you may invest more because you expect uh, tax uh, taxes to go down in the future. Uh, taxes, uh, on the other hand, taxes have distortionary effect on the economy. So there is all a supply side uh, of the economy that is left out in this model. If you raise taxes, uh, people uh, uh, may may want to work less, may want to invest less because of various effect on uh, on uh, on uh, investment uh, on investment decisions. And then there are more uh, more. Uh, uh, shadow, but I think important effect that, uh, uh, which is actually turned out to be important in some European countries, which are highly unionized, if government spending means reducing the growth uh, or even the level uh, of uh, public sector wages, that may have an effect on uh, private sector wages and increase uh, profitability and investment of, uh, of uh, firms. And all of these, all of these effects have uh, nothing to do with confidence. But uh, in addition to this, I do think that confidence is important because we have empirical evidence suggesting that uh, when there are spending cuts, the confidence of investors actually goes up, and the confidence of consumers uh, goes down uh, very little. While while there are tax increases. Uh, confidence of both consumers and um, business investor uh, goes down uh, quite a bit, and we have evidence on several countries of that. So even so, confidence uh, plays a role. So, uh, and then there are many. I mean, as I said, austerity plans are a combination of many, many um, other policies. So it matters what monetary policy does. It matters that um, sometimes, particularly in European countries, uh, when there is a crisis and austerity is called for, uh, then that's an also an opportunity to uh, engage in other so-called structural reform, like labor market reform and um, good market reform, liberalization of various uh, sectors, which uh, help, and that indeed has, has happened. And of course, monetary policy matters, as we were saying, you know, in a, in a situation in which monetary policy is uh, supportive, uh, expansionary, that uh, that helps uh, that helps the fiscal adjustment. So these are just uh, the more important of many other factors which are left out from the basic Keynesian model. So I think that thinking is not that the basic Keynesian model is wrong. It's simply that this, they focus only on one. Of the on the of the many effect of uh, of uh, fiscal policy, so when you include the richness and the complication of um, of the various uh, the various other channels in which fiscal policy may operate, then you get a picture which is much more which is much more complex. Now, on the specific issue of expansionary expansionary fiscal policy, expansionary austerity. Uh, that does not mean that and nobody, including me, has ever said that cutting government spending per se is expansionary. But the, the notion of expansionary austerity is that in some cases, uh, the, the Keynesian effect of cutting spending is small and is more than compensated by other effects, which are some of the ones that we talked about uh, about a moment ago. And 
And, uh, you know, in the 80s, there have been examples in Denmark and Ireland. In the 90s, there have been examples in Canada uh, and in Belgium. Uh, the case uh, of, uh, and in Finland, if I remember correctly, and, uh, you know, the case of England, uh, even in the middle of the financial crisis, is uh, a good example. So, um, and so that's that's what the evidence says. So, um, and I think uh, it's, it is uh, a complicated issue because many things go on at the same time. There are many uh, interactions that are difficult to disentangle. But I think that uh, this is what this is what a fair uh, reading of the evidence suggests. So, let's talk about the challenges of that disentanglement because. Macroeconomics suffers, I think, from this problem generally that there's too many things going on. It's very hard to attribute changes to only one particular set of things. You've mentioned two of the bigger ones, reform, structural reforms that take place at the same time. Uh, monetary policy is the other obvious one. In your work, try to give the um, non-technical listener a flavor for how you try to hold those things constant in a world where not only is there more than one thing changing, but the changes themselves are often endogenous. They're not imposed from the outside. They're responses to un those underlying economic variables that are we're, we're trying to measure the effects of the policy changes on those variables. So it's a very complex system. So how in that world do you try to measure the effects of, say, austerity or changes in spending or cut taxes? And uh, how precise do you think those estimates are with respect to the assumptions you make? How robust are they, I should say? Well, I mean, you I think to about, begin you with... About, uh, you have about five minutes for that, so good luck. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a complicated question, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, uh, it is a very difficult question, of course. Uh, and there are two, I think, two issues which are difficult. One is the what uh, we call reverse causality, namely if you see uh, the deficit over GDP going down uh, and, uh, and, GDP, and uh, GDP going up, uh, you, could not you could not conclude that since the deficit is going down, therefore GDP is going up. The deficit over GDP may be going down simply because the GDP is going up for whatever reason and the deficit over the GDP is going down. So it's the, it's the denominator, not the nominator, that, uh, that determines the decline in the deficit over the GDP ratio. So the, the first issue is causality, what causes what? Is it growth that causes fiscal policy or fiscal policy that causes growth? And the second is that a bunch of things going on at the same time and how do you hold those? constant. So on the first, uh, on the first uh, question, one, there are many, there have been many, many ways of addressing this, this problem. The one uh, which I think is uh, more useful for the case of austerity, and which is the one that uh, some work at the IMF and then uh, some work that I've been doing uh, is based upon is the so-called narrative approach. So uh, that is a very time-consuming way of looking at uh, what actual, what government or international organization actually did, announced, did, and then may have changed their announcement and did something else. 
but um, looking at their document by saying uh, government of country X in year Y decided that regardless of the state of the economy, they were going to raise this tax rate of X percent or cut this spending program by Y percent. So we don't, you don't look at uh, how government spending uh, over GDP has gone, but you look at what policies have actually been implemented. We have cut $30 billion of in government salaries, for example. So you look at the actual, actual policy action. So in other words, you don't look at uh, the behavior of government spending over the GDP. You're not just looking at the the data. you're, you're interested in, in – you're calling this narrative, right? This is the narrative. You're trying to figure out what happened It's, when. it's a narrative approach, which was – right, which is, was pioneered by Romer and Romer for the U.S. They looked at uh, – they said, if you look at the tax over – if you look at the tax over GDP, be, uh, the tax over GDP uh, ratio in the U.S., in their case, they were looking at the U.S., you may get confused because the taxes over the GDP ratio may go up or down because the GDP moves around, not because the tax rates have moved around. So they looked at, uh, they identified several episodes in the sec- post-Second War U.S. in which there were actual decisions of government to reduce or raise taxes for reasons which have nothing to do with the business cycle, but for other reasons. So this narrative approach has been, been extended both by work done at the IMF and then by work that we have been doing on uh, all, many, all, uh, many other OECD countries and not only looking at taxes but also looking at spending and focusing on, um, focusing on austerity, namely focusing on period of spending cuts and uh, tax increases. So, so that's, the first step is to try to isolate changes in spending over GDP and taxes over GDP that come from movement in the economy from changes that come from actual policy changes. So that's one piece of the puzzle. The second piece of the puzzle is, uh, is that to the idea that, um, that many things happen at the same time. So, uh, take for example, monetary policy. Uh, the, uh, and suppose you are trying to make the argument that uh, spending cuts are less costly than tax increases. How do we know that uh, spending cuts uh, are not accompanied by more relaxed monetary policy and tax oh, increases exactly. by less relaxed monetary policy? And that's what explains the difference. Yep. Two answers. The first one is that you can do that by various measures of trying to hold constant monetary policy, and we have tried to do that, and the IMF has tried to do that. And the answer is that monetary policy indeed has been slightly more relaxed uh, over the, during spending cuts than tax increases, but not enough. Even if you account for that, it's not enough to explain the difference. And in addition, as you also mentioned in your question, monetary policy is itself uh, endogenous. That is, suppose I am a central bank and I see a government that is serious, is cutting spending and announces permanent spending cuts, which will lead to not raising taxes or even taxes or, or even reducing taxes in the future. 
uh, uh, I, I am, I am relaxed and I can reduce rates. If I see a government that is uh, in a crisis, raising taxes desperately and then raising taxes again uh, in the future because it cannot keep up with spending, uh, then I get worried and then uh, monetary policy has to be different because I'm afraid of a, of a, of a crisis. So even monetary policy is endogenous, but in any event, even forgetting this second order effect of on endogeneity of monetary policy, holding constant monetary policy in the best way you can, uh, the difference in, uh, in uh, the effect of spending and taxation is, remains very strong and actually surprisingly, surprisingly large. Now, structural reform, labor market reform, um, these are clearly much more difficult to measure than monetary policy. Um, and, uh, uh, so there are two ways of answering your question. One is, uh, to hold them constant, of course, to say there are measures, uh, and in fact, we have collected, uh, we have, we are collecting measures of, uh, structural reform, and you can, uh, hold them constant, and the results, uh, survive. So the one way, one way of answering your question is to say, okay, we can all, as best as we can, we can hold all this, um, uh, structural reform constant. But, and, but then the second way is actually to embrace, rather than holding them constant, to embrace them and to see, suppose I am uh, an advisor to a government and I tell him, what is the best way, uh, particularly a European government, what is the best way to do an austerity plan that is going to work and, and be less, as uh, least uh, costly as possible by looking at the data, we say, look, you should cut spending and engage in the structural reform because it would appear from the evidence that the combination of spending cuts and uh, structural reform is the one that works uh, best. So you can try to hold them constant if you are interested in the, to measure as well as possible spending cuts versus tax increases, or you can embrace them from the point of view of policy recommendation and saying, you know, it would appear that the best austerity is the one that's based on spending cuts and, uh, and structural reform. Well, structural reform. The, sounds- the other variable with that, sorry, the other value we didn't talk about is exchange rate. Yeah. Which are also, of course, yeah. endogenous yeah. and sometimes, uh, uh, they move. Uh, and there have been some discussion about whether exchange rate devaluation have helped or not helped this or that type of, uh, of adjustment. Um, and again, you try, uh, exchange rate are endogenous like everything else. So you cannot say let's hold constant the exchange rate because changes in government spending or taxes. But, um, the, the, a simple look at correlation does not show that the difference between uh, tax increases and spending cuts is explained uh, by uh, by exchange rate movement, which is a different statement than saying that exchange rate devaluation may in some case help. Uh, that's a different statement than say it's only because of, of exchange rate movement that tax and spending are different. So I was just going to say structural reform always sounds like a good thing because we assume reform is positive. Uh, of course, it's really 
changes in policy, some of which might work, some of which might not work. But uh, I think it's extremely clever, both on the monetary policy and the structural reform, to argue that it, it, it may be good policy advice. It does make it harder to assess the independent impact of spending, obviously, which you've conceded. It's not, you know, it's not a criticism, but it's hard to know exactly how much of it is, is due to spending. Um, obviously, even with the best empirical techniques, it's challenging and not everyone agrees with you, but you're suggesting there's something of a consensus. I, w- I want to challenge you in a different way. Given that, let's assume this is true, which you're confident that it is, that Spending cuts reduce, um, have a smaller impact on output than tax increases. Does that have implications for other aspects of economic policy and economic life, uh, given the mechanisms by which you think those changes have those effects? Talking, you talked about expectations of the future. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about the current debates over so called Keynesian stimulus or monetary policy is that. You know, it's very hard to to know of the longer term effects. The difference between short run and permanent. A lot of people have argued that you know short run changes don't have much of an effect no matter what. So, given those claims about the differences in, um, I, I should say, temporary, not short term, temporary changes have mm-hmm. little or no effect. Have you thought about the implications of that finding for other aspects of policy? Well, let me make a couple of comments. One of the, on the temporary uh, versus permanent effect. Um, your this com- the conversation about the, the the conversation about austerity that we are having and the debate that has been going on uh, at mo- at, uh, at, at, at a lot most of it has a lot to do with the short term impact of uh, austerity policy. I think nobody uh, uh, would. I, mean, I don't know some extreme. People may argue that uh, you can run budget deficit and that that growing ad infinitum, but uh, most people would agree that sooner or later you need to bring deficit and debt um, under control. Uh, the question is, what are the costs of doing that uh, in in the short run? Now, in the medium and long run, uh, incidentally, uh, the, another result of this research that I've been doing is that. Uh, fiscal adjustment based on spending cuts have been more successful at keeping uh, debt over GDP ratio constant rather than, uh, than than spending adjustment based on tax increases. And the reason is pretty obvious that both in the U.S. and in Europe there are uh, various entitlement programs, Social Security, pensions that uh, are increasing at a rate that if you don't stop them, you are forced to raise taxes forever and ever and that has negative impact on the economy and, and on, on the budget. So they, they implica- they, even talking about fiscal policy, the medium and long run implications are not, are not trivial because uh, in, we are talking about OECD countries with taxes over GDP ratio in the order of 50%. If you don't stop the growth of certain entitlement, you will never, you will always running after uh, a moving target that is always increasing. So that is uh, so that is another aspect which is unrelated to the short-run output cost of austerity, but it's related to the longer-run uh, expectation and reality of uh, fiscal of fiscal balance. Uh, so that's an important uh, implication. 
regarding other variable on uh, which other variable that austerity affect. I mean, one I think one very important and interesting interesting debate is that whether austerity, particularly the austerity based on spending cuts, has negative effect on uh, inequality, social programs. Uh, uh, um, welfare of the less wealthy and so on. And this is, of course, an important question uh, that we need to understand better. Um, but I think that uh, we, when we think about also Keynes and uh, Keynesian policy and so on, we should not forget that when Keynes went writing in the 20s, government spending over GDP was a fraction of what it is today, you know, 10, 15%, and I forget the right number, but it's certainly a fraction of what it is today. Now, in the country we are talking about, we have government spending over GDP from, you know, 40 to 60. And the question is, and here we are not talking about cutting government spending by half. We are talking about a few percentage, a few percentage point of GDP, say from, I don't know, from 40, Germany is 45, or I don't know, France is close to 60. We're talking about a few percentage points. Now, are we really saying, those who are worried about inequality, and so on, are they really saying that if we reduce government spending by 3 or 4% of GDP, we are throwing hundreds uh, of thousands of Europeans in poverty? I think, frankly, my answer is no. I think there are many ways in which you can do it without throwing people in poverty. There are a lot of programs which are not means tested in Europe, so a lot of rich people receive a lot of benefit, uh, public goods and services that are not means tested. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things that the private sector could do even better than the public sector. So. A lot, there's a lot of room uh, for achieving this kind of budget cuts, uh, preserving the welfare of the very poor, if, if that's your goal. When we talk, tax, when we talk about tax increases, uh, we are not saying anything about uh, the progressivity of the tax system. Uh, the tax system are already progressive, but uh, there is, you know, if you're talking about tax cuts, Nobody is saying that it should be the rich that should get the tax cut. Uh, you can have tax cuts, uh, you know, uh, over the, on the middle class uh, and not, not on the rich. So the level of spending and the level of taxation per se, they say very little about uh, redistributive uh, consequences. And in fact, the countries like in Southern Europe, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, who are facing the biggest problem in terms of debt and the need for austerity are also the country that have the, the worst uh, welfare system in Europe, uh, namely, despite the fact that they spend not that much less than Northern Europe, uh, all the evidence shows that welfare is very poorly provided in those countries. The welfare system are very inefficient. So despite, despite spending so much, they're not doing a lot of good in terms of reducing inequality. And the Northern European countries who are actually also more fiscally responsible, they have a large government, but they are much more efficient at uh, redistributing uh, wealth. So, um, so the level of spending and the level of taxes says relatively little about uh, redistribution. And uh, so, um, of course, much, uh, of course, one should go much more in, in, in detail, but there's no reason why you cannot spend 4 or 5% of GDP less 
in European countries without, uh, w uh, and, and by doing so creating an, an enormous increase in poverty, or even a small increase in poverty for that matter. So I just want to make a, an aside because I think it's important in um, current uh, economic debate as the presidential elections moving along here in the United States. When you said, you know, you don't have to cut taxes for the rich, you could cut taxes for the middle class. Um, I think a lot of people might think, well, the middle class don't pay a lot of taxes. And I think that's true, relatively true to the rich for income taxes. But a lot of people forget that we have substantial payroll tax in the United States that's paid um, by any worker. And it's roughly 15 percent. It's seven and a half or so on each side, the worker and the employer and most economists seem to believe that the employer's side is paid by the worker in the form of lower wages. So uh, there's that somehow that tax burden just gets forgotten because, quote, that's for Social Security, but it's not. It's just another tax. It's got a name tying it to Social Security and disability payments, et cetera. Uh, but it just goes into the same pot. So it's it's important to remember that when we think about the tax burden in the United States, you shouldn't just look at the income tax. You need to look at the income tax combined with the payroll tax. So I just, that's just an aside. I want to turn to the question. Absolutely. And let me, absolutely. Let me add, let me add that, uh, you have, that, that in fact, tax system, even in Europe are quite different from, uh, from, uh, from each other. So, uh, the word cutting taxes may mean a host of different yep. things in, uh, in different countries. And in fact, um, the, but you you make a very important point, which is I would like to generalize. I mean that when you talk about cutting taxes, incidentally, people uh, increasingly people think, okay, only the rich pay taxes, and therefore cutting taxes means uh, making doing a favor to the rich. But I think there are ways of doing it uh, with other perhaps corrections uh, in the tax structure that uh, is not necessarily the case. Yeah, I would you know my personal preference would be that we abolish the payroll tax. Uh, and because I think it confuses and, and makes opaque what is actually happening and raise the income tax uh, so that we can see what's going on a little more clearly. And for a lot of reasons, uh, I think that would be a good thing. But <clears throat> I want to turn to the issue of, of debt, not the deficit. Uh, we've talked about, we've been talking about both along the way and people get those confused. Uh, one is a stock and one is a flow. That is one is a particular amount at a point in time and one is something that's debt, the national debts. How much do we owe? At a point in time, you can answer that question. Whereas the deficit is the amount we spend above what we take in in a particular time period, say a, a fiscal year. And they're related, obviously. And you reference, and many people talk about, uh, the debt to GDP ratio, that, that there comes a point potentially where that itself is so high and we're worried about this for the effects you were taught reasons you were talking about a minute ago. There's demographic changes given entitlement programs that suggest that that ratio will get ever higher to the point where it would be extremely difficult for the United States to continue to borrow, given that uh, the debt would be very large. And when this kind of conversation takes place, people reference the work of uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff on the debt to GDP ratio. Now, some people have called said that work is flawed. Uh, what I want to ask you is two questions. Uh, is it a serious concern in a country like the United States? 
that that somehow we should be careful about how much we borrow because if we continue to borrow, our national debt will grow to such a point that the markets will lose confidence in the United States' ability to repay it and we will have a crisis just because of the amount of debt we've we've accumulated over time. Do you think that's a reasonable worry? And if it is, how might one begin to think about when that would happen? Because a lot of people say, well, everything's fine. Why are you worrying about it? We need we can borrow plenty more. First of all, let me just say that uh, Rodolfo and Reiner got uh, really badly mistreated uh, by by the press. Uh, I think there, there was uh, an error in their uh, in their calculations in one particular paper, but uh, which uh, but the main message of their fantastic book and fantastic work remain remain uh, solid. And I think, uh, unfortunately, their mistake happened in the middle of this uh, yep. extremely heated discussion about austerity that they were really, they really received, uh, a, 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 but from part of the press at least, a really a, an undeserved, horrible treatment. Having said that, um, the, uh, the, the, clearly the U.S. is a country that has a, lo- has a lot of uh, credibility. Uh, people keep uh, buying uh, U.S. Debt because uh, there is a sense of security in the U.S. government that they will not go into a, a crisis. Interest rate for a variety of reasons are extremely low today, so uh, borrowing is cheap. Um, and in fact, some people argue that we should borrow even more to build to rebuild the infrastructure, given that interest rates are so low, and there is some values uh, in that idea. But I think the problem is that um, there are certain programs, particular Medicare, that uh, are exploding. And if you le- if you read the the uh, Social Security and Medicare, that if uh, particularly the latter, that if if you read the projection of the Congressional Budget Office, are really really scary. So if you if policy do not change, uh, the debt over GDP ratio uh, may grow to level. Either the debt of a GDP GDP ratio may grow to level that uh, are become uh, unsustainable, or we don't spend in anything else other than Medicare because Medicare is growing at an incredibly fast rate. So something has to be done uh, about this uh, these uh, programs. Is there an uh, early said if you do, if you don't do something tomorrow or in the next two years everything is going to explode? I think the answer is no. I don't think there is. I think uh, on the opposite side of those who keep saying, let's borrow more, let's borrow more because uh, everything is fine. The, those who say, if we don't do something dramatic in the next couple of years, every, the U.S. is going to go bankrupt uh, or, or default uh, is also, I think, not true um, because of the credibility that the U.S. government have accumulated in their history. But uh, uh, something has, something will need to be done. Uh, that for sure. When the debt of a GDP ratio reaches a point which becomes unsustainable and the problem uh, is very hard to know. I don't think there is one number for every country. I mean, when uh, Latin American in the 80s got into crisis or or even now they go into crisis, their debt of a GDP ratio is, is, is much lower than uh, some countries in Europe. 
uh, or the US. So the level of the debt over the GDP ratio, what is sustainable or not, depends a lot on the credibility and on the confidence that investors have in a particular country. And the US has a lot of confidence on the part of the investors so that the, 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 the US can, can uh, sustain a very large debt without the problem of a confidence crisis. But the dynamic, the, the first derivative of the debt because of Medicare is quite, quite, uh, is quite uh, worrisome. So without, uh, you know, spreading terror amongst Americans, but I think uh, they, should do, they should be some, some serious discussion by the next few Congresses about uh, what to do. Well, one might argue that unless you spread that terror, there's not going to be any incentive for Congress to do anything about it. I mean, it's a very challenging problem of political economy. To me, it's a problem where there's no problem until it's too late. It's a very so that that kind of problem is not handled very well by politicians. Um, and but I look I'll, that is that is that yeah from a from a political economy from a political economy political economy point of view, you may be actually absolutely right. Uh, I was talking more as an economist than as, as, a, as, a, as a, but uh, but you may be you may be you may be uh, you may be absolutely right. I mean the country I am from Italy is a perfect example of a country that they wait until the last moment to do things and when and when things get done uh, in the last moment with your or uh, when you are against the wall you may make decisions that uh, are not optimal because you don't have the time to do the right thing. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't. Uh, I wasn't criticizing you. Uh, no, no, I understand. I was just making the, and I certainly would never suggest that economists should lie or exaggerate this, the fears to make sure that the politicians respond. I think that's also a mistake. But it's a fascinating problem in the data. Japan is running about almost a three hundred percent debt to GDP ratio, which would seem to be unsustainable. There is a. Suggestion I've seen that a lot of their debt is not really debt in the sense that it's there's any worry it'll be have to be repaid. It's held by the government itself, or it's you know it's it's not as scary as it really actually appears if you look at the data more carefully. But it is true, as you point out, that every country has its own level of credibility and reliability and expectations, and some countries can live with much higher ratios than others, probably without without a crisis. Right, and also the very low interest rate that we have today is, uh, in some sense, is, uh, is another, we can call it confounding factor, because now debt is, is, is cheap, and it's cheap to borrow, and, uh, but uh, who knows? I mean, probably interest rate will remain low for quite a while, but uh, perhaps not forever. And since we are not, again, we are not talking about short run, we are talking about medium and long run, in the medium and long run, uh, we should expect interest rates to go back to more normal situation. And when the interest rates go up, then the burden of the debt become higher too. My guest today has been Alberto Alessina. Alberto, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.